welcome to you and your money. I'm Brian Hirsch and this evening we are focusing on estate planning. I often wonder about whether South Africans who invested offshore are happy or saddened when the RAND weakens. It's natural to want to see your investments grow and many who have taken money offshore and invested in equities will have seen excellent returns in foreign currencies. However, when valued in RANDs, the picture is slightly different. Up to a few weeks ago, the RAND had strengthened over 18 months. Some of these investors were asking whether they had done the right thing to export RANDs. They also questioned how their offshore investment should be structured. And joining this evening to answer some of these questions are Gordon Stewart, Managed Director of Cura Mauritius, and Harry Joffe, Head of Legal Services, Discovery. Guys, good to have you. Hello, Brian. Gordon, good to first see you again. First, Gordon, let me congratulate Thank you on you the Cura's Award. Yep. Well done, Gordon. Step Award. Thank you very well much. Well done, Gordon. Tell Thank us a bit you. about Thank it. You. He's won more than Man United well, have won in five years. <laughs> Well, I should probably let uh, let Harry talk about it because he's the uh, chairperson of STEP. But you talk about it. But in essence, uh, Acura won the best mid-cap trust company uh, at a very large banquet in London, and that is the Jersey, Geneva, and Mauritius offices. So we are very proud to to be known as the best mid-cap trust company. Internationally. Well, well done to you. And, no, uh, thank you. And, and we miss you here in South Africa, but it's good to have you oh, on the program. Thank you, Brian. Guys, thank you. A question for both of you, but it's, gonna, it's, it's from a different angle. Gordon, people are saying to me, we've exported capital. Yes. And that capital, what are the advantages and should we be thinking about using a trust offshore? And Harry, then I'm going to come to you because of, of, uh, trust seem to have lost a little bit of flavor. So maybe you first, Gordon. I mean, you know, people have got assets offshore, assets are growing. Uh, in foreign currencies, and ultimately, you know, it, it's not going to escape income tax, but certainly, should you be using a trust? Jeez, Brian, that's actually, I've got a very short period of time to answer a very complicated question, but mm. I think first and foremost is that when looking at offshore assets, look at the income tax consequences and see if there's not a more efficient vehicle to at least mitigate the annual taxes that are going to have to be paid on that investment. And then second of all, don't forget that that asset is an asset in your estate for not only probate fees, which is the executor's fees, but deemed capital gains tax and estate duty tax. So then the question would be exactly the same as what you would have here in South Africa. Should I structure my affairs um, to go to mitigate against those taxes. Harry, have trusts lost their flavour in South Africa? Yeah, Brian, it's a very difficult one because as Gordon's saying, you can't ignore all the taxes and all the anti-avoidance laws that SARS has got. I mean, the paragraph 31 of the Income Tax Act where they have an imputed uh, interest rate on your loan against your trust, for example. So, I mean, I like to look at an endowment policy as an alternative, not always as an alternative because it can't do exactly the same thing. But with an endowment policy offshore, you can have a, a beneficiary nominated, which pays direct to the beneficiary, so you avoid probate. And also the tax in the endowment policy, if you structure it correctly with the right company and the right policy, might be lower than your individual rate of tax. So a lot of these companies have got these endowment policies housed in offshore centers, so you can pay almost zero tax in that policy. And can I just quickly add on that, because Harry mentioned a very important point, in offshore centers. So when you run through the endowments, and I'm very happy to, to, for clients to use endowments. I think it's one of the, the options and solutions that are available yeah. to clients when investing offshore. 
But also another big benefit of the endowment is, is that it removes the situs tax problems of having to invest okay. directly, for example, in the UK or the US. As long okay, as let's your beneficiary yeah. So let's deal with this. Um, uh, Stephen Gunyan sent me an email this evening and he said, please could Gordon explain a grant or trust in terms of US situs tax and the implications to a South African taxpayer of a foreign, tr foreign trust being called and classified as a grant or trust in terms of US CITES estate tax. If a foreign trust is classified a grant or trust, how can a South African resident plan to avoid the adverse US CITES estate tax? Wow, I'm getting really complicated questions with short periods of time to answer. Can I suggest, because this is actually a very technical and complex mm. answer, looking at grant or trusts, uh, foreign grant or trusts and the complications with regards to beneficiaries who might be US or non-US citizens. Can I rather ask him that he emails me and then I'll send him a more comprehensive answer? Okay, but then let's talk a bit about CITES because it's, it's a word that seems to have raised its, its head a lot. People are now concerned. I've got an offshore investment. I'm invested in a share portfolio. I've got, obviously, my portfolio is made up of European, UK and US shares. Yeah. And what are the in inheritance tax implications for South Africans? Because in the US and the UK, estate duty inheritance tax is 40%. That's exactly correct. I think the best way to look at what is CITES. CITES is exactly the same as the estate duty, the way estate duty is taxed in South Africa. A non-resident, <coughs> someone who comes across and buys assets here in South Africa, will pay estate duty tax on their assets that are situated in South Africa. And the same applies with regards to CITES. CITES is where the asset is situated. So in the UK, if you buy assets in the UK, it's CITES-based, you're going to pay estate duty tax in the UK at 40% on anything over £325,000. There is rollover relief to the spouse, so that's one issue. Looking at the US, they're not as lenient. Uh, their rates start climbing up towards 40%, starting at 60000 US, and you don't have the ability to roll it over to your spouse. And again, Brian, that's why an endowment policy is such an attractive option. Again, in the right center, because you can house your assets in that policy and you can avoid a lot of these problems. And also a lot of, I mean, would you say the endowment policy, because in, a new endowment or a wrapper? Well, a wrapper. wrapper exactly, yeah. a wrapper housing these investments in a tax center with a nominated beneficiary on. But Harry, if you move these assets into an endowment or into this wrapper, you're going to trigger immediately CGT, a capital CGT. Although you, CGT is always inherent in that value of that exactly. investment. And again, CGT is very complicated for South Africans because remember it's a function of the foreign currency as well, depending on what asset it is. So if it's a direct asset, you might find if the rand is strengthened, you, you, know, you might find interesting CGT knock-on effects of that or if the rand is weakened. And don't forget that death is a deemed capital gains tax event. So it's always going to be there. So sometimes it's maybe better to look at structuring now and mitigate the capital gains tax going forward exactly. than having to trigger it on death, um, which is then an unforeseen kind of a timing. And that can have very, very negative tax con cash flow consequences. And avoiding probate, of course. The last thing you want is to have to appoint an executor in America and have to pay those fees, whereas an endowment policy can take that away. So... Again, you've got to do a full plan mm. on that. Okay, well, we're going to take a short break. You're watching New New Money. Stay tuned. You can call me 011-280-5350 when we return.
Welcome back to New Money. We're discussing estate planning this evening. My guests are Gordon Stewart and Harry Joffe. If you'd like to call us, our number is 011-280-5350. You can also email me on brianh at bhca.co.za. And if Gordon's got a big smile on his face, it's because of the award that they got. <laughs> can, I, can I smoke it? <laughs> exactly. no, that, that's a okay. highly sought-after award, so it is, we are yeah. very proud to yeah. have won it. We've got um, Jonathan on the line. Good evening, Jonathan. Go ahead with your question. Hello, Brian. Um, other years I've given the kids millions of rands. How would the master or uh, my executors ever pick this up for estate or donation tax purposes? I well, didn't pay, catch the first one. He's giving his kids children millions of rands. A million rands over the years. But no, yeah, I'm one, one of his kids. That's yeah. what I say. Okay. No, but I mean, you know, I mean, if, if you haven't ever produced... Um, it's very easy. I mean, SARS can pick it up on asset and liability statements mm. because I'm assuming the individual is pretty wealthy if he's giving away all that money. So he probably is doing an asset and liability statement, so SARS could pick it up that way. And if he doesn't? If he isn't, what you normally find happening in practice, and we see a lot of court cases, is when the individual dies and one of the children has been uh, given more money than the other. And then they normally lodge a claim because they say you must pay that money back to the estate. So say child A was given five million by dad and child B was given three million. You normally find child A saying you must put two million back into the estate because you've been unfairly enriched instead of me. There is also and then there's a fight. Yeah, I mean, there is obviously the thing that what he's doing is committing a tax avoidance issue because Which by moving... Which is fraud, I would say, because you're not yeah. declaring it. It's close to being tax fraud. I you're mean supposed to pay donations tax on that amount. So again, I think I always use the analogy. We all know that you're not supposed to drive faster than 120 down the freeway. If you do and you get caught, you're going to get fined. If you don't, you're good luck. Yeah, Brian, there is a question on your tax return if you've made big donations yeah. that you should be answering. Yeah. You know, Gordon, you talk <laughs> about driving 120. I know you moved from the Michelangelo <laughs> to the Maslow. Uh, yeah. Two hours today is about a kilometre. Yeah, pretty <laughs> much. Yeah, Santon is the biggest parking yeah. lot at the moment. Okay. Peter, good evening. Go ahead with a question. Yes, uh, Gordon, uh, previously you spoken about bottom drops. Uh, please can you explain how that works and what the benefits are? Yes, sure. Yeah. The bottom draw trust is simply a concept that I came up with to allow South Africans to take into account uh, to, or to allow them to establish an offshore trust, but at a very low cost. And they set the trust up now at a, at a very low fee. And then for the next five years, there's no trustees fees. And I did that to allow them or to give them the ability to, to cater for the Reserve Bank regulation which does not allow a South African trust to directly own an offshore asset. So if you think of a situation where you have a husband and wife and two minor children, and when the one spouse bequeaths to the other, there's no complications. The surviving spouse is allowed to inherit, they're over the age of 18, and they simply place it on record with their authorized dealer. But then if you read further in their will, it'll say, failing my spouse, I bequeath it to my children. But then further on, it'll say if my children are under the age of 25 or 30 or whatever age you've filled in, then it's to be held in trust. And that's where the, the issue comes in, because that South African trust is not allowed to directly own the foreign assets that the person has taken offshore. So the bottom drawer trust is a trust that you set up now at a low cost, and it then lies dormant. And then in your will, you would say, I bequeath to my spouse. Failing my spouse, I bequeath my offshore assets. I want to emphasize that. My offshore assets to the, this trust, which is a full discretionary trust, and I bequeath the residue of my South African assets 
to my children, and if they're under age, it's held in a testamentary trust. And again, everyone's circumstances are different, and you've really got to get Agreed. advice on that. Agreed. Okay. Robbie Le- Ladysmith says, I understand that legislation was passed whereby interest-free loans to trusts from the 1st of March 2017 will be regarded as a nation and attract income tax. Mm. However, what is most disturbing is it seems that these amendments, which are effective 1st of March 2017, have been re-looked at, and there's new legislation that applies retrospectively. Can you confirm whether this is correct? And if so, under what circumstances will SARS apply the legislation to prior years and how far back no. will they go? Brian, so that's, that's not quite correct, to be honest. Um, the legislation comes in on the 1st of March. So anything before the 1st of March isn't being taxed. But it is retroactive in the sense that if you set up a loan account prior to the 1st of March, it gets caught in this new amendment from the 1st of March. Yeah. If you set up a loan account prior. But if you had a loan account... Going back 20 years? years ago, it's so you're only paying tax from the 1st of March. Yeah. It still gets caught, but it's not retroactive in the sense that you're not getting punished for back years. Yeah. It's only from this tax year, 1st of March. Yeah. So if you had a loan account at that date, that's what you pay the so tax So if you had a loan account, forward. then you'd repaid it. Then, then, wouldn't then you don't have to pay, yes, you no you problem. Email from Nigel in the UK says, I live in South, Af- South Africa and work for a South African company, but spend six to seven months a year working in the UK. I understand that I'm now <coughs> going to be taxed in South Africa on my earnings, as well as taxed in the UK. Is this correct? Can I still leave the money offshore? So that's two questions. Firstly, Harry, let's talk about mm. the legislation. Uh, what, what section the is the one The yeah. new one, isn't it? The 10 which yeah. is proposed to be scrapped in the TLAP, Taxation Laws Amendment Bill. But now in the parliamentary comments, they said they're not scrapping it totally. There's going to be a partial exemption. Mm. So quickly to backtrack, 1010 says if you work overseas for an offshore employer, for more than 183 days. I just want to correct, any employer. doesn't even have to be offshore. doesn't even have to be offshore. Yeah. It's got to be for an employer. Can't, you can't be self-employed. Correct, correct. So you work overseas for an employer for more than 183 days in the year, of which 60 are consecutive. Mm. Then under current law, you're not paying any tax on your offshore salary. Obviously, in any other income offshore you are, but you're not being taxed in South Africa on your offshore income. So now, what was upsetting Treasury was that some people working in Dubai, which has got a 0% tax, of course, for non-residents, and, and Gordon, uh, working on Gordon. <laughs> Gordon and Mauritius. Gentlemen, Gordon, let's, stick with, let's stick with the Dubai <laughs> example. <laughs> Gordon living the dream in Mauritius. <laughs> so Treasury saw that these people are paying no tax anywhere, and that upset them. So now their proposal was to scrap 1010 totally. Then in Parliament, there was a lot of anger, and a lot of uh, the expat community got involved. So now there's a concession they proposed in Parliament, not yet law, just a proposal to say the first one million rand of offshore earnings would be exempt if you qualify under all the other conditions and the balance would be taxable. And it's only going to come in 1 March 2020 now. Mm. So, you know, there's still a long way to go before this is going to change. People can still decide what they want to do. And your first one million rand. And the second point is you're not going to pay double tax because what they were saying in Parliament is you can go to SARS and you can get this uh, credit worked out where you're only going to be taxed above what you're paying in the UK already. So you're not going to have to pay your tax in the UK and here and then try to get the credit. You'll be able to actually work the two out together. And, can, and the second question yes. is, can you leave the funds yes. offshore? That's a simple yes. yes. Okay. yes. Then so Graham can leave his, uh, all his money offshore. Yeah. Yeah. So Graham in sentence says, I understand retirement is also a good estate planning vehicle. There's a lot of confusion regarding what income I can use to calculate the 27.5% deduction up to a maximum of 350000 a year. Can I use capital gains in the calculations? That's gone to and fro, Harry. Right, yeah. guys, that's a great question yeah, from Graham. I mean, I think we should give him that trophy of Gordon's. <laughs> he deserves it. 
Um, it has gone to and fro. 1 March 2016, the law changed and it said you can use your taxable capital gain in the 27.5% base calculation. So let's assume you've got no income, you've got a million rand capital gain, but no other income, you could use 27.5% to give you 275,000 as a tax deduction. But stage two says you can only physically claim a deduction against taxable income. So in that year, if you've got no other income to claim against, you'd have to carry it forward. And you couldn't claim the deduction actually against pure capital gains. It was just a baseline calculation. So, so if you earned 300,000 and a million rands capital gains, and exactly. you worked out 27.5%, you could claim it against you your 300,000 you exactly. rand. Now in Parliament, well, in the T-Lab, this Taxation Laws Amendment Bill, there was this proposal, we thought, to scrap that and to change the, the capital gains formula so that you couldn't use your taxable capital gains. And we put in a whole lot of comments from a CISA, and in Parliament they said no, they didn't intend to change that, it was just neatening up the drafting. So that hasn't changed and you can still, as of today, use your taxable capital gains as part of the 27.5%. Okay, let me just take Christian's call, then we will take a call and Christian will answer your, e your question when we come back. Christian, go ahead with the question please. Uh, good evening, gentlemen. My question is in relation to Section 37C, if I'm correct, of the Pension Funds Act. Right. I would like to know uh, which steps would a Board of Trustees take into account when uh, a payment of a, be a debt benefit uh, needs to be done. Um, I would appreciate some answers from your panel, please. Super, okay, Christian. Brian, we'll when, we, when we return, we'll certainly answer your question. Please stay tuned. You can still call us. and We're going to take a short break. Welcome back to Newman's Evening We Talk Estate Planning. My guest is Gordon Stewart and Harry Joffe. Uh, we want to deal with Christians. He talks about 37C, Harry. It's mm. a perfect one for you. T um, t um, appointment. People think under the pension fund they can appoint who they like. Uh, certainly not like a life policy where they can. Under retirement and pension funds, very different. Correct. So any RA or any pension fund or any preserver falls under 37C, and that means the trustees of that fund have a duty before they pay out to look who are your dependents. And there's a whole shopping list in 37C. They look at factual dependency, legal dependency, and they've got 12 months. And they often take that full 12 months to actually see who are the real dependents. Because if they get it wrong, and they pay the wrong parties, and dependents come out later, they can go to the adjudicator, and the, those trustees can be liable. And you have those cases often where they have to, to redirect the discretion. So your beneficiary that you nominate is purely a guide to them. They're not bound by it. And just one point that we're talking about during the break, is that if you move out of your RA into a living annuity, a living annuity does not fall under 37C of the Pension Funds Act, and that's how you can avoid that right. if that's an issue. But any RA, any preserve, any pension or provident fund is caught by yeah, the I've got a question about living annuity where someone's getting, they've, they've been separated, they're now getting divorced, they've got a living annuity, and ask the question about can he split the living annuity between him and his ex-wife and split the tax. The answer is simply none. You can't do that with a living annuity. Yeah, well, a living annuity is not part of uh, the assets for divorce. It's not like an RA or a pension fund. The, the Divorce Act doesn't actually catch it. So the ex-spouse isn't entitled to half the assets at all. She actually can't claim, or he can't claim any of the capital in the living annuity. All they've got is a maintenance claim against the monthly income. 
But if he wants to, if that individual he wants can't. to, you, he you can't. You can't see a living in there. You can't make it over. You can't pay it to third parties. He actually can't. Okay. Then Ima from Linden Cape Town says, how do the changes to my will impact on a trust? I have that was set up by my parents, Gordon. Well, I think first and foremost, Brian, they're two totally different documents. The trust sounds like her parents set it up. So it's an inter vivos trust, and that falls under the management control of the trustees. The will and the assets in, in the trust belong to the trustees and the trust whereas the will is going to deal with her personal assets. So they're actually two totally different documents. So if she changes her will, it's not going to have an impact on the trust itself. So you don't have to actually know, I mean, because we recommend that people re-look at their will and they make changes from time to time. You don't actually have to go to, and what if you had set up that trust yourself? Well, I think where there would possibly be a link between the trust and the will is if the trustee reserved powers for her to nominate a successor trustee. But other than that, and obviously, she can only exercise powers that are granted to her by the trust. So if there's no link between the trust and her, her will's not gonna have any impact. And it'd be very problematic if she's got testamentary power in the will over the trust. I mean, that's one of the issues the court would look at to see control over that trust. That wouldn't be a good idea. Well, they call it testamentary reservation. And even if it is in the trustee, don't use it. Samantha in Jansburg says, if my husband dies, how long does it take for me to get money from the state because I have ongoing expenses that need to be paid? Eric? Yeah, I mean, Brian, that's a difficult one to answer because how long it depends on the, how complicated the state mm. is, how difficult it is to wind up, you know, what the issues are. Of course, if she's got an insurance policy, I'm going to throw that in, or an endowment <laughs> policy with a named beneficiary, that isn't part of the estate for winding up. It's paid out in 48 hours. So that's, again, one of the benefits of a policy. And, I mean, if she hasn't got a policy and she's batting in the estate, she can always ask her executor to advance her monies to live. I mean, that's normally most executors would do. And if I can just quickly add on this, I think first the executor can only go about closing the bank accounts once he's been issued with the letter of executorship. Mm. And that, in turn, can take a fair amount of time. If she is the sole heir to his estate, then there won't really be a problem because she would ultimately have benefited from those assets. Where you pick up uh, complications is that if she's not an heir to the estate, if she starts dipping into the money in the bank account before they are closed, and she would not have received that because it would have gone to someone else, then she's technically committed. She can only dip into the bank account if she's got signing authorities. That too. Well, in in EFTs, I mean, if she knows her husband's bank account and the PIN and everything. But, but always good for both spouses to have bank accounts. And of course, cash. liquidity. I mean, that's why our policy is so important. Jokes aside, a policy yeah. provides that liquidity immediately. You don't have those issues. Yeah. Terry can say in Durban says, I took over an investment policy from a friend of mine. He initially invested 500000 The investment dropped to 300000 So I bought the policy for him and paid him the 300000 If the policy grows back to 500000 will I pay CGT or will the gain reflect that the There'd be no gain because policies are original no, value. No, no, second-hand policy. Once you've got an endowment policy, paragraph 55 of the eight schedule, catches this exactly. Mm. It's a second-hand endowment second policy, policy, which means you pay CGT when this thing matures one day yeah. or when you take any draw on it. So he's paid 300,000 Rand for the policy. It's grown to 500. I mean, it's obviously a good investment advisor. Yeah, it is, yeah. Probably Brian could learn from him. He's made a 200,000 <laughs> Rand gain. If he cashes it in now, he would pay CGT yeah. on the 200,000. And, of course, he pays CGT in the portfolio. Yeah, so he's actually paying double CGT yeah. because of that paragraph 55. 
Yeah, the ceiling sentence is my husband and I, oh, that's the one, we've dealt with that one. Uh, that's the one about, oh no, my, my husband and I have recently been offered, sorry, um, a discovery life policy for estate planning purposes. Harry, purposely for you, <laughs> which pays out in the last of us dying. Is this a good idea? Okay, I've always my wondered about, sorry, <laughs> I've always wondered, wondered about that, Harry. I mean, you know, you take out a policy for estate duty purposes and really, if there's a husband leaving everything to the wife, wife to the husband, there's rollover relief. Right. So okay. that's not a bad idea. Right. So, I mean, all credit to our actuaries at Discovery. They've come up with a very good product. So, how it works is you've got two lives and one policy. You pay a premium. When the first life dies, the policy doesn't pay out. It only pays out on the second dying, and then the policy locks. So, you don't pay any more premium, and you don't have any more changes on the policy, and it only pays out on the second dying. And as you said, Brian, it's a perfect answer to the most to most of your average middle class uh, state duty problems because husband leaves everything to wife, she leaves everything to husband. And that's a perfect plan mm. unless, of course, something, that something goes wrong. But this way you can be sure when the second dies and the four Qs now used up, there's liquidity to pay the state duty and the capital gains tax, don't forget. Yeah, the capital, capital gains, gains correct. Gordon, Harry's got a vested interest in this. Uh, you think that's a, a good innovation? Stop kicking me. No, I think it makes perfect sense. You know, when you, you've always got to look at the nature of the assets in a person's estate uh, to determine the liquidity. And while someone can be asset rich, they can be liquidity poor. Uh, and the last thing that you want to have to start doing is selling off assets just to pay death duties. So yeah. I, I think it is a good idea. And the fact that the premium locks after the first diagnosis also. An extra benefit. Roy and Janisbury said, I'm currently starting a business with a partner. We are both in our 50s and still insurable. We believe our business will have enormous growth over the next three to five years. We could, and we could sell the business for 10 million. We've been advised to buy life insurance now for 5 million each. If we over-insure, what are the state duty implications? Okay, so that's again a classic question. Mm. I mean, our, our audience are very sharp tonight. So 33A1A of the State Duty Act says that your life insurance policy would be exempt from estate duty if it's to fund a buy and sell. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. Mm, mm. But if you have a share of five million and a policy of seven million, then SARS is going to say that's not to fund the buy and sell anymore. It's got other motives as well. And then SARS is not going to let you have exemption for that policy. Because 33A1A gives SARS a discretion whether they want to give you exemption on that policy. So yeah, it looks all right because the shares are worth five million and the policy is worth five million. So then they should get estate duty. He's saying that they've just started the business, so the business can't have that value yet. Well, it's going to grow to five million. So if it yes. grows to five million, they're okay. Okay, but what if they die tomorrow, yes. there'll be a problem yeah. because then it's not a legitimate buy and sell policy mm. at that value. Well, because the value is that much lower. Correct. But you know, five, ten years time, you can't get the insurance. There's a lot more. Well, that's so the issue. people tend to overinsure. Yeah, that's the issue. So Brian, what I would recommend, if they're worried about that, take the policy for five million. But just in the buy and sell contract, make sure you pay the correct amount for the shares. So mm. if the shares are worth one million, B insures A for five, but only has to pay one million if A dies. He'll keep the balance, he'll have enough money to pay the state duty, but at least he won't pay donations tax, which is a second tax mm. that could be applicable mm. otherwise. Well, my apologies to those emails we never got to, but the concept and advice be behind estate planning is to help one make the right choices in order to secure the financial well-being of those one leaves behind. It's important to have access to all the right service providers who are well equipped to give the best possible advice in drafting one's will, which in my mind is the cornerstone of your plan.
where there's a trust one needs to ensure that the trust deed is up to date and also ties in and with your will, although Gordon makes the comment that they are two separate entities. Gordon and Harry, thank you for joining thank me this you, evening. It's always a pleasure. It's important to note that our program is to provide information and not should not be construed as advice. Next week's program will focus on the short-term insurance. If you need to get hold of me, my details will appear on the screen. I'd like to thank you for watching. And before we go, Gordon will take his trophy. Yeah, well done, I will. Gordon. I will. And thank you for watching and good night. <laughs>